Welcome to Money's Alchemy episode 3. I'm your host Asfi and uh, I'm really excited today because uh, we're going to get into um, a topic that's very very meaningful for me and it's actually something that you know got me interested in this whole stablecoin discussion in the first place uh, and that is um, stablecoins in developing countries. Uh, in particular we're going to get into you know how, what can this new technology uh, offer uh, uh, challenges uh, that are faced by um, entrepreneurs and and, uh, and and businesses in in developing countries, and I'm and I'm super grateful uh, to have my to have uh, Wayne Huang, who's, who's created a really cool solution, and also uh, to Manny, who we had in the last episode, uh, who's agreed to co-host this episode uh, with me. Um, so, um, agenda-wise, uh, we are going to get we were four we're going to cover for five topics today we're going to talk at a high level about why currencies depreciate versus the dollar uh, what does the on-ramp experience look like for um, uh, uh, users in developing countries who want to use uh, ethereum or some crypto asset and then we'll talk about uh, how does this project unit us? How does this work? Uh, what is it and how does it work? And, and also how, how you could potentially earn from uh, this project. This, this white paper is not public yet, but Wayne was kind enough to share it with me. Uh, I read it, I digested it, and uh, you know, I'm going to give you a summary of it. And then we're going to get into a conversation with Wayne. And the quote that I have um, for you uh, for today uh, it's from Milton Friedman, uh, which says that inflation is the one form of taxation that can be imposed without legislation. So let's get into um, well, why do why do currencies um, keep depreciating? Yeah, at a most uh, basic level, when the supply of currency is in excess of the demand for that currency, price of the car the said currency relative to whatever benchmark in this case the dollar is going to fall now what could cause demand to fall well demand could fall because um, speculators may be worried about uh, the amount of taxes that a government is collecting relative to the expenditures they have they may also be worried about which is something that creates the so-called so fiscal deficit they may be worried that the exports that the said country is doing are not are not uh, much greater than the imports that the said country is doing, which creates the so-called current account deficit. And a common response to such deficits is often increasing uh, money supply in order to, or increasing uh, uh, bank reserves uh, in order to uh, meet uh, a shortfall that uh, a government may be experiencing. Other things that can factor uh, ch uh, changes in demand for a currency are things like interest rate. If a if a currency for Pakistan, let's say, decreases uh, their interest rate, uh, the demand uh, for that currency is expected to go down. Now, what this does is um, it creates a bit of a vicious loop where um, uh, weakening currencies and weak laws, it pushes entrepreneurs and businesses to migrate. Uh, and you know, this is something I've personally dealt with. I, I, I helped build a business in Pakistan. And um, Pakistanis, I would say, people in Nigeria, in Turkey, in Argentina, they deal with this a vicious cycle that you've got declining dollar reserves as a country, um, which then often causes the state or the state bank to put a cap or a ban on outward remittances, meaning, you know, if you're a business and you want to send money out of your country to do business internationally, it becomes very challenging. 
Uh, and because the banks are acting essentially as an extension of the government, they don't have a lot of incentives to serve the end users, which then causes the businesses in many of these countries they struggle to compete. And that is what often pushes businesses out of those countries. It's something I've personally experienced. Um, and uh, and that creates a really uh, vicious loop. Um, stable coins are offering, are, are, you know, arguably the most, one of the most uh, um, important, I would say, applications uh, that currently exist in this cryptocurrency space. But in many countries, um, the, uh, you know, it's not, um, uh, in many countries, including Pakistan, um, cryptocurrencies aren't legal. So, you know, there's there are these peer-to-peer -peer networks through which on-ramping is happening. And this is a, so just if you're not familiar with the term on-ramp, on-ramp means how do you take your money and get into crypto land? So what I'm sharing with you on this screen currently is how um, Pakistanis currently onboard uh, onto onto crypto and so the most popular application used by Pakistanis is this is the Binance application which has a number of peer-to-peer -peer service providers now the no going to pay attention to steps two and three on this slide um, I want to go over these um, uh, very slowly because they're very relevant uh, for uh, what Unitas does the peer-to-peer -peer agent while when they accept rupees what they are promising to the user is some stable coin or some ether in their wallet but in order to 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 close this trade what these uh, peer to peer traders need to do is they need to buy dollars locally in pakistan and then they need to find a way to uh, access an exchange in some other country where there is an exchange operating typically in dubai um and in now 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 what this does is between step 2 and 3 there's a challenge of how does this peer-to-peer uh, -peer agent actually, uh, you know, get dollars overseas. So they often end up using an informal network called Havala. And, and, and this uh, uh, move between two and three, it, uh, you know, creates a bit of an asset liability mismatch where uh, the peer-to-peer -peer agent has accepted uh, rupees. He has promised dollars, but he's got a time lag in between uh, where he's got to make sure he can get the dollars uh, uh, get, uh, uh, local or like find uh, the relevant agent so that they can uh, get the money out, make the money reach in Dubai, uh, find the, uh, buy the relevant currency and then send it to, uh, you know, the, the person in Pakistan who actually uh, gave them uh, the rupees uh, in, in, in the first place. Now, this is where Unitas is offering a really unique solution. See, currently, there are no tokenized rupees. Uh, there are no tokenized liras, um, and that's because they're well. They're, they're, they may be there, but they're they're not very liquid, and they're 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 they're, they're somewhat hard to to create. Um, and so this is where Unitas is, you know enters as a unit of account protocol uh, for emerging markets, and they have this basic view that everything's a dollar, just divided by a different number. So, you know, the Indian rupee is a dollar, you divide it by, I think, 91 or, or 78 or whatever. The, I, don't, I don't know what the current exchange rate is, but, you know, the, the Pakistani equivalent would be you take a dollar and you divide it by 275, uh, which is where it's trading at the moment. This protocol rests on three big ideas. One that, as I said, every currency is a dollar. 
The second one is that these developing country currencies will keep on depreciating against the USD. And I think the third big idea is that the need for dollar liquidity and the need to join this uh, global dollar system is so strong by businesses that they will overcome this really awful user experience that we go through when we have to figure out, you know, MetaMask and gas fees and seed phrases and all that uh, difficulty that comes from um, getting onto crypto for the first time. So now, how does this whole system work? Um, this system is over collateralized by two types of players. There are minters and there are insurers. Minters are the end users who want the tokenized rupee or the tokenized lira. And these minters um, are, um, they, they um, you know, so, so they don't over collateralize. Um, uh, so for example, if I'm a Pakistani minter and I want 200,000 Pakistani rupees, I can give 200,000 uh, rupees worth of dollars and I will get my 200,000 uh, unitas, uh, uh, you know, or USD 275 is how they would call it. The collateralization comes from a different player uh, who are called insurance providers. These players are essentially uh, the ones who are um, insuring collateralization. And for insuring collateralization, uh, they get uh, a share uh, of protocol revenues, uh, which is something uh, that we are going to work, we're going to talk about. This protocol um, mode uh, changes though. I mean, so the one key thing to keep in mind is that uh, this protocol uh, keeps an eye on um, uh, its, uh, its uh, reserves relative to its liabilities. So some terminology over here. What are reserves? Reserves are the dollar coins that have been put in by the minters and the insurers. And the liabilities are these, uh, you know, uh, emerging market currencies like USD 91, USD 55, USD 234. And the key tenant or the key principle in this protocol is that uh, they've got this lovely line in their white paper that, you know, anyone can go up a mountain, but what's really important is that you should be able to come back down. And so, um, Conversion back to what they call USD peg is always unconditional. Meaning, if I'm holding USD 275 uh, because I'm in Pakistan, I can always go back to the USD peg, which is pegged to one dollar. Uh, but the but to but to go the other way, meaning if I'm if I'm a new mentor and I want to enter the system, that can only happen if the if the if the existing collateralization ratio, which is which is the so-called D total, uh, which is reserves divided by liabilities, this is greater than some minimum collateralization ratio, which can be set by a governance input, and it can range between 1.2 to 2.5. Uh, that's how they've set it up. And if this total um, uh, 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 collateralization ratio defined as reserves divided by these liabilities ever falls less than the minimum collateralization ratio, then minting of these new uh, USD emerging market currencies is suspended. So now, but then one has to ask if one is, you know, seriously thinking about using the system, 
Well, uh, what what does happen when you fall under this uh, so-called collateral target collateralization ratio? What are the lines of defense? Well, the most obvious line of defense is that you just have to wait for the underlying currencies to depreciate, which is basically the the larger bet that these insurance providers are taking. The other um, pieces of defense are that this protocol generates revenues uh, through transaction fees that it takes and it holds them in reserve uh, for up to seven days uh, before distributing it. And so these these revenue reserves also act as a point of defense. Other points of defense are you know, encouraging insurance providers to uh, lend more capital or encouraging these so-called mentors to convert their insurance positions. Um, now, this comes to, you know, as far as, you know, you are concerned, you the user or let's say you the crypto investor, how could you earn from this project or what's, uh, you know, what could be in it for you? And here is where I, I quite, uh, I found their governance token uh, to be very interesting. So, their governance token is tied to the only way to get their governance token forex is if you are an insurance provider and, and here's kind of how that works so for you so you can earn from this protocol as a capital provider by becoming an insurance provider and insurance is provided through these collateralized debt positions that is somewhat similar to maker but the one difference is that these collateralized debt positions they are uh, based on a time maturity Uh, and that's something we're going to talk about in a bit like how they do these uh, time-based maturity auctions Uh, but what 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 happens with this uh, collateralized debt position is that let's say i am an insurance provider i've given money to unitas and i've now i what i'm essentially bidding on is how many uh, four rex tokens uh, i'm going to get and how long i'm willing to Uh, lock up my liquidity for but if I want to um, take my money out what I need to do is I need to go back to the protocol and give them my forex tokens or I need to burn away my forex tokens and and the cool thing is that's the only way these forex tokens can get created there's no other pre-mine there's no other team allocation there's no other advisor allocation and so the only people who get an allocation for these tokens are these insurance providers now the price discovery for this capital that wants to provide insurance this is taking place through auctions and that's something i found pretty cool too this is kind of how their auction mechanism is working so this protocol is listing these so-called maturity-based auction markets so think of it like they're saying hey um lock up your capital for 14 days or lock up your capital for 21 days and and tell me what you're willing to bid for like how many forex tokens do you want and then it uses this thing called a reverse first priced sealed bid auction um it's just basically like they they tally up all the bids uh on uh uh, you know, uh, uh, and 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 you know, uh, award it to um, you know, which, which, whoever's placed the uh, the most compelling offer. Uh, and 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 the thing, the key thing for you to know as an insurance provider is, if you want to place a bid, as a bidder, you need to specify how much you're bidding, the maturity, meaning how much how much time you're willing to lock up your liquidity for, and 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 how many of these forex tokens do you want in return. That's kind of how their auctioning works. And so now, why would you do that? Well, there's real yield uh, uh, on the table. And, and here's how this real yield is working. So every seven days, um, this protocol is distributing revenue to 
uh, insurance providers who have basically locked their uh, liquidity uh, to create this over collateralization and uh, this each day's revenue uh, is stored separately in an array and um, the other key thing is that revenue gets distributed only if this uh, collateralization ratio or what they call d total is consistently above the minimum collateralization ratio uh, that uh, that is required uh, and um, uh, the last bit to just know uh, is that this so-called insurance taking uh, it's only allowed when the total collateralization ratio is less than the um, uh, the maximum uh, uh, collateralization ratio uh, uh, permitted. Now, now, lastly, last slide, and then you know we're gonna get into uh, a conversation uh, with uh, with Wayne and Manny. Uh, you know, I, when I looked at this and I read through the white paper, I wondered, like, you know, who exactly are the users? And they do define it in the white paper. So the users, the minters are commodity traders, importers and exporters, money services businesses, local centralized exchanges, and also that P2P lenders, the ones that I showed you earlier. And who would be these insurers? I'm guessing the currency and commodity traders would likely be insurers, investors seeking yield or retail investors even or someone you know even like me who's got a view uh, on emerging market currencies and uh, the place of uh, dollars in or, or the place of and 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 how they are sort of expected to trade uh, i mean just for context right like the pakistani rupee has depreciated 7% per year on average over the last 50 years it's somewhat of a predictable trend so you know so long as you're <coughs> dealing with currencies like that uh, it becomes quite compelling. And so the three key, um, I would say, reasons for existence that this protocol talks about is dollar liquidity. And, and this part is pretty key. In Pakistan or in Nigeria or in Turkey, going from dollars to local currency is easy. Going from local currencies to dollars is hard. And even if you want to go from local currency to dollars, you always have two rates. There is the local market rate, there is the actual market rate, and there is a so-called official state bank rate. And the local market rate tends to be much worse for the user compared to the official rate. The other issue uh, that uh, businesses face is custodial risk. In many cases in these countries, dollars have been frozen. You know, the country gets into trouble, there's some war or something, and bank accounts have been frozen. So that is another risk that, you know, businesses very much contend with. And then finally, the last one is uh, reliable rates. Um, well, I guess reliable rates I talked about earlier. But what dollar liquidity also means is... Um, Conversions in size is very hard. Uh, you know, you it's sometimes it's sometimes difficult to uh, move money uh, in volume, and so um, this um, this unit of account protocol uh, solves a very interesting accounting solution. It offers a very interesting accounting solution, and because of that accounting solution, uh, you know, in theory, uh, it can make available. Uh, it can it can solve it can in theory solve a bunch of problems, uh, you know, as far as the on ramps are concerned. So with that, I am very very pleased to welcome Wayne, uh, who is joining us from India, where it is I think four thirty a.m. <laughs> and and I am also thrilled to welcome back my friend Manny. Uh, I should start calling this show Manny's Alchemy because from now on, Manny and I are going to co-host this thing together. So welcome, Wayne. Welcome, Manny. I'm so glad that you guys are here. 
Hey Manny, hey Asfi,、uh, thank you for having me. What a pleasure.、Uh, I want to start uh, uh, with uh, you, Wayne. I mean, you heard my、uh, presentation. I want to first start with did I, did we get, I mean, you know, did I kind of get that right? Like, is there something you'd like to add,、uh, you know, in terms yeah, of no, how, no. how it was explained? You, you, you got it right, uh, Asfi. Uh, that was、uh, wonderful. Uh, introduction to Unitas. Thank you. I'd like to uh, just uh, uh, add two things. Um, uh, the, uh, because you had an earlier version of the white paper,、um, uh, the white paper that we will be releasing, the minimum over reserve ratio has been changed to、uh, 1.3. So 130% to 250%. That's、mm-hmm. one.、Um, second is、uh, we've、uh, almost implemented the full protocol. It's、mm-hmm. about at least 90% done.、Um, and so, in the next few days, we're releasing the white paper.、Um, we've not done any type of capital raise, uh, but um, uh, in order for the foundation to have resources,、uh, we believe that we will be doing、um, some type of pre mint. Uh, and if we do that, then we're going to be publishing another, another white paper on that.、Uh, that's undecided yet. Yeah. Very, very cool. Good to know. Good to know.、Um, well, the, where I want to start the, our discussion today,、uh, you know, particularly because you know, you've created this, uh, uh, this very interesting concept of a unit of account protocol. Um, so, so, Manny, I want to start with you today.、Um, you've written, so you wrote a really wonderful article that I've shared with Wayne.、Uh, you called it Money's Functional Trilemma. And you, you said that you know, we should start thinking about not so much like what money is, but what it can do. And so、uh, you also said in that that you know, a money can't be good at all three things. It can't be a really good unit of account. It can't be a really good store of value. It can't be a really good medium of exchange. Interestingly, that's something you both are very aligned on. Manny, I want to start with you. Can you maybe give us a 101 on what were you getting at、uh, when you were thinking about that functional trilemma and also try to explain why, is, why are you so certain that that trilemma is real? Uh, Asfi, sorry,、uh, your yeah, video is frozen for me.、Um, so I just wanted to remind Manny,、uh, is, are you seeing、uh, Asfi on video?、Is、I can video see him actually.、Thing? He's just very choppy. Oh, that is okay, really、right. unfortunate. I, you know, I, it's,、uh, I really don't know why <laughs> that's, that's really unfortunate. I mean, I've got a wired internet connection currently,、oh. but like for some reason, Uh, it see,、uh, you know, it keeps telling me that like、uh, my connection is unstable. We, we are pre recording this, so hopefully it's not going to、uh, be too choppy、uh, when we actually end up、uh, uploading this thing. All right, so I'm going to pretend that you just asked me that question.、Um, yes. <laughs> so I, I, that's a great question. The, the, the idea for the paper kind of came to me all at once. I, I was thinking about.、Uh, You know, the, the, the nature of money and how it's discussed in economic circles, and the very,、uh, what I would call almost trite dismissals of anything done in cryptocurrency, right? I, 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 a common critique of cryptocurrency is that it's not a real currency, right? It's not real money because it's not these three things. And as I was thinking about that, 
um, I kind of had this image of this triangle in my head. And as, as I was sort of reviewing all the historical examples of things that have served as money throughout history. And it kind of occurred to me that most of the things that we call money throughout history are actually not good at these three things. Um, and the functional trilemma is a, it's really an essay of exploring like, why would that be the case? Right. And so it, it posits that there's three things that money do uh, or that money does. Uh, one of them is uh, being responsive to demand, right? Uh, the other one is uh, holding the unit value uh, of a currency stable. And the other one is kind of the stock of a money being stable in general. Uh, but in, you know, I, I think I gave a couple examples in the previous podcast about, you know, for example, bills of exchange, right? They were foundational to the expansion of medieval European commerce all the way into, until the 1800s. Uh, and yet we wouldn't think of them as stores of value, right? Or units of account. And I gave you an example, you know, of the uh, Kuping Liang, right? In the Qing dynasty, which is a unit of account, but it's definitely not a medium of exchange. So you have all these currencies everywhere. Um, and as I was thinking about Unitas, it, it occurred to me that it was very similar to currency boards, right? Of the past. So uh, currency boards, right? So for example, the, the U.S. set up a few in say the Philippines or Puerto Rico and so on. Uh, the British set them up in, in their colonies as well. And the idea is that you would establish a local monetary authority, right? It would issue kind of its own currency, but the reserves would be the currency of the imperial power. And so they would be redeemable at a certain exchange rate. And so that type of system, right? Uh, it, it, the, the unit value is relatively stable. The stock of value is relatively stable because it equals the reserves, but it doesn't quite meet demand, right? So this is like a very good store of value money, right? But, you know, you would occasionally have shortages of it, right? If you were short on the foreign exchange needed to create more of this local currency, you were kind of out of luck. So it's, you know, there, there's some trade-offs there, but this is a very, this is a very traditional model, I would say. And, and so I was quite happy to see it. Because it, it's one of those things that's been tried and, and it's quite resilient if managed properly. Yeah, very cool. I mean, I guess with, which kind of brings me to like, you know, another key one. I mean, what's, how did you come up with this, right? Like, I mean, you're obviously, like, you know, you've done a bunch. I mean, you've, you've done a bunch of very interesting work in cybersecurity. And, you know, I know you, you know, your co-founder grew up in Pune. But like arriving at this specificity, right, to say like, we want to make a unit of account <laughs> protocol. And that is going to solve a Forex problem. Like, what's the genesis there in the thought process? Let's maybe start there, Wayne. Yeah. Uh, and, and Manny, I, I really like that trilemma. Um, and it's the first time I've, uh, I've um, you know, read uh, uh, about it. Um, so, so thank you for the article. Uh, but uh, it's also a, a theory that we, we've had um, between myself and my co-founder, Winston. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I, I did my PhD in cybersecurity, and then I founded uh, a company, Cybersecurity, which was acquired by a cybersecurity leader um, in Silicon Valley called Proofpoint. So really, I'm an enterprise software professional and a cybersecurity professional. Um, what got me into all of this was uh, initially uh, starting in 2006, uh, because a lot of the software were written in India, and uh, we we're selling, uh, uh, developing and selling uh, a tool that could detect vulnerabilities inside source code. Um, so uh, decided to uh, 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 
set up shop in Bangalore. Uh, and uh, once we've incorporated in Bangalore, I think around 2007, that's when we realized. So we really don't don't really understand um, how India works, and forex was so difficult at the time. Uh, so that was my first exposure. Um, later on, uh, as cybersecurity professionals, we all got into Satoshi's uh, white paper, you know, cryptographic currency. So, and I. I read that white paper, uh, I think in 2010, um, a little bit late, and I just, I just couldn't understand it because uh, I thought, you know, a lot of these uh, algorithms they were not new, and I didn't understand the innovation. Um, and then in 2013, finally, uh, I met Winston, uh, and and he was the one that got me uh, into understanding Bitcoin. Uh, and understanding emerging markets. Winston is Taiwanese uh, that grew up in India until he finished university in India. And then he founded Verico. Uh, Verico uh, owns many computer electronics brands uh, that they design and manufacture in Taiwan and they sell into mostly to India, right? Um, and what I understand first from Winston and how this relates to Bitcoin was I understand, okay, so emerging markets uh, like Verico, for example, um, they manufacture another five containers of uh, uh, of um, hard disk, all right, uh, in Taiwan, and they ship, they sell these uh, five containers of hard disk in in, in narrow place here in Delhi, all right, uh, and then and then their job is done, right? They sell it to uh, a few distributors in narrow place, but now they end up with a lot of rupees, and there's just no way. Uh, to convert this rupees to the U.S. dollar because the country um, is very heavily reliant on imports. So the country itself is spending a lot of dollars, but the country is a lot weaker on export and therefore the country does not earn enough U.S. dollars, right? So therefore, uh, you as an entrepreneur running a small medium business, you're not going to be able to go to a bank and ask for this U.S. dollar liquidity. So what Winston and a lot of his uh his business partners at Narrow Place, they're also big exporters. So they use this rupee and they buy fish or Indian manufactured textile, tea, later on coffee beans, right? And then they they export that. They find a foreign buyer to export that uh, Indian manufactured product. And now they earn dollars again, right? So they've always been actually earning their own dollars instead of going to banks to, to ask for dollar liquidity. Um, and then Winston told me that uh, he got into uh, manufacturing uh, Bitcoin mining machines in 2012 because Taiwan has TSMC and TSMC is top of the food chain. It was manufacturing the most important chips uh, for the Bitcoin miners, right? And so um, he was manufacturing well-recognized uh, 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 um, well uh mining machines. And then he told me very interestingly, uh, when I met him in 2013, that he's been exporting Indian produced Bitcoin. And I said, what do you mean? As a way to access US dollar liquidity, he says, oh, you know, um, we have to export, right? To earn dollars, but uh, export uh, exporting agricultural produce, for example, is very seasonal. And like right now in winter, um, exports are not very good. You cannot really find a lot of very good products to export. So 
during that time, then uh, Winston goes to there weren't stable coins back then, so he goes to the Bitcoin miners and say, "I got all these rupees, right? Anybody want to sell your bitcoins?" And the miners usually they will sell、um, if the price is right because they have to fund their operations, pay for electricity, pay for their staff, pay for their warehouse rent,、um, uh, their data center rent, right? So and the India、uh, and then so、uh, with all these rupees, Winston goes and buy Bitcoin. And then he quote unquote export that Bitcoin. He deposits them into Bitstamp and sells for dollars.、Right. And it's a lot more efficient and uh, uh, and、um, and 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 a lot faster to just export Bitcoin than to to export、uh, other types of products in order to earn U.S. dollar liquidity.、Uh, so that and that was in 2013. So that's when I first learned of this problem.、Um, And then eventually, through Winston, I met、uh, a, a lot of、uh, his friends that had similar problems. For example,、um, I met one Taiwanese business owner. I have a lot of respect for her.、Uh, she lived in India for five years, learned about all these issues, and then moved to uh, uh, to Cairo. And she's been there for 15 years. She now owns two factories in Cairo.、Uh, they. Design and manufacture ag-、uh, agricultural vehicles, so、um, spray and also、um, yield collecting,、uh, yield farming vehicles that she sells all over Africa. I learned a lot of the issues that she was facing. For example, we met up about、uh, three months ago again, and Susan was、uh, again asking for our help. The last time we met up,、um, a government. She only sells these vehicles to governments. She says it's too dangerous to sell them to private companies, and this government uh, could not uh, sign contract to pay her in dollars. Could not pay her in dollars. She uh, ultimately uh, agreed to accept gold, and she's、uh, signed two contracts to sell this gold to Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturers to use this gold for industrial use. And she's acquired the permits to import this gold. Now she needs to find escorts. Um, to escort this come、uh, the、uh, the gold、uh, back to Taiwan, and Winston、uh, to worked together with her. They found an escort company,、uh, and the gold goes to Yemen first, and then from Yemen goes to、uh, gets imported to Taiwan. Right. So、um, three months ago, Susan Kim asking for our help again.、Uh, this time it's agricultural vehicles.、Uh, she signed contracts with three African uh, uh, governments, a hundred and seventy million. Uh, worth of agricultural vehicles. She manufactured all of them, and she shipped them to these three com-、uh, countries. Now they're sitting at port. However, because of the economic winter, all these three governments、uh, came back to her to say, "Yes, the contracts are signed in dollars, but we don't. We just don't have dollars to pay you right now, right? So we need to pay you local currency." And we're gonna help you to acquire real estate, to build malls, right? To to invest locally. And Susan's done a lot of that in the past,、uh, but this time Susan said she's taken out、uh, more than a hundred million loan from a Switzerland financer.、Uh, and so she she needs to pay back that loan, and she this time she she needs dollars, right? And our job then is、uh, is really to find.、Uh, Other local merchants that's willing to take up all these currency uh, from uh, uh, from this friend, 
Um, so so th that's the problems that we're facing with uh, with these uh, small medium businesses, entrepreneurs uh, doing so business I, in emerging I, markets. I was going to say these are fantastic stories because they illustrate a point that I was going to make later. But I think this is the perfect segue for sure. Zooming out and giving some context of like, why does this happen? Right. I mean, you have two countries that are, you know, they're in, you know, they're one's in Africa, the other one's Taiwanese. Why are, why do they need dollars? Right. That's such a weird question. Given that the United States today is 24% of the world economy. It's weird that they're, they're trading in dollars. And so this reminded me of the work done by, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, I know, uh, by, by Jita Gopina. She's an Indian American economist, uh, professor at Harvard, but she was the chief economist at the IMF. She's now the deputy managing director there. Uh, and she's been uh, pushing a theory called, or something called the uh, well, dominant currency paradigm, I think, since the mid-2010s trying to answer this paradox of why does everyone need dollars when the U.S. is such a smaller, a much smaller share of the world economy. Uh, and, and so I wrote down some numbers that I wanted to, to cite here. So in terms of um, foreign exchange reserves, right, dollars are 60 percent. In terms of international debt, they're 65. Uh, loans and deposits, they're 55. Foreign exchange turnover, it's, it's in the low 40 percent. SWIFT, it's 50, 50 something percent. Invoicing is, is over half as well. And a lot of this creates, there, there's, there's some type of network effect that interacts with local commercial banking in all these emerging countries, right? Where you have people that have some export import exposure, right? They have things that they import that they use to manufacture and perhaps they have exports. And it is that demand that leads local commercial banks to acquire all these dollar safe assets because there's such a demand for dollar denominated accounts for all the reasons that you just explained, right? I mean, imagine having to sell Indian produce on in the international market to get dollars to service your, your dollar obligations. So banks are under a lot of pressure to provide dollar accounts, but in order to collateralize those accounts, they need dollar assets. And so that's why there's always this demand for dollar safe debt. Um, and so she theorizes that that basically is, is one of the pillars that supports the United States as this dominant currency, even though the share of global output is so much smaller. So that's kind of one of these big picture things. But I, I love these stories because they they show like how difficult it is to meet this need. Uh, and, yeah. you know, people complain about the U.S. borrowing too much, but it's the alternatives are just so much worse. Right. There's just it's just so difficult to get dollars in a lot of situations. Yes. Uh, and the name Unitas. Uh, so at, at post-World War II, at Bretton Woods, the member nations were to decide what's the next system. And at this time, the U.S. had two thirds of the world's gold. Right. Uh, so one yeah. solution put forth to the member nations was uh, economist uh, Keynes uh, proposal called Bancor. And Keynes were, was representing the U.K. U.K. did not want the U.S. dollar to become to replace um, British sterling as the next world reserve currency, right? So Bancor proposed um, uh, uh, developing an entirely new currency that all member nations would use. Uh, the economist, uh, the economist representing the U.S. was called uh, Harry White, and his proposal was called Unitas. 
It was basically that uh, because the U.S. had all the gold, that the U.S. dollar would be pegged to gold, and all of the other nations would be uh, reserved by U.S. dollars, right? And had a, an exchange rate to U.S. dollars, and that's why we named the protocol Unitas after Harry White's uh, original proposal at the Bretton Woods, because uh, this protocol is very similar uh, in concept uh, to Harry so White's proposal. I did some of my graduate research on the Bretton Woods Conference from the Chinese and Mexican perspective. So this is my chance to shill two books, The Battle for Bretton Woods, which is really good. And then there's the actual Bretton Woods transcripts, which got rediscovered about five years ago or so. Um, did you did you write? Are you an author or a co-author in those? Uh, no, this was my my thesis. Not not for these books. Now these books are written. Well, one of them is just the transcripts of the conference itself, which are fascinating. And the other one is Ben Steele, uh, is is the author of the other book, um, Battle for Bretton Woods. It's worth remarking that Harry Dexter White was in fact a Soviet spy. Um, <laughs> and so he was an avid anti-imperialist. So he worked very hard to undermine the British at that conference. And one of the other things that comes out of the Bretton Woods conference is kind of forcing the, the British to settle a lot of these outstanding sterling debts, which really unravels the sterling zone, right? The kind of the sterling block. And that wait, wait, so when they stop. So when did when did they discover he was a spy and what did they do to him? Like uh, that's, I mean that's not later, a I, conversation, but yeah, you know, you know, some people say that, you know, uh what was it? Something about McCarthy McCarthy wasn't wrong, he just failed, right? Because you know, in some ways he, he was worried about all these communists in government, and now we're discovering there were in fact a lot of communists in government. Um, but, you know, this was discovered, I, I think the government sort of knew after a few years, but in terms of historians reckoning with the fact that this guy was in fact a Soviet spy and sympathizer and kept trying to reach out to spy handlers who at, at some point, they weren't sure if he was really willing to flip. And so they stopped contact, but there's, you know, all this evidence is in that book that I mentioned, the battle for Bretton Woods. Um, so. But yeah, so that is one of the reasons that he he undermined Keynes so much at this conference and the British in general right, is because right. he was very committed to the anti-imperialist ideas. That is that is that is super fascinating. Um, back to Unitas for a minute, uh, uh, and when I want to ask, um, I mean, when I look at the map of regulations, uh, I think Thomson Reuters has had this lovely. Um, I'm just going to put up that map. Um, yeah, it was like a... Give me one second. I'm just going to... Yeah. So, if we take a look at this... Uh, well, hold on. We should get, all be on it. If we just take a look at this map, uh, can you see my screen, Tom? Uh, yes. Wayne? You know, yes. we see that... You know, this is a, a report by Reuters on... Uh, I'm just going to blow this up a bit about just the status of cryptocurrency regulations. And, you know, we see a whole lot of green in LATAM. You know, we see a bunch of red over here and a bunch of unknowns. I know for a fact crypto is illegal in Pakistan. Like, there's some ban. I know that in Nigeria, the state bank has a different view and the securities regulator has a different view. Um, I know that Argentina and Brazil are quite forward-looking when it comes to this whole conversation around crypto. And I know that, you know, places like Turkey, uh, I know that, you know, I know that Turkey and Pakistan, even Bangladesh, you know, there's a, 
there's a there's a, there's a sense of worry and i think that sense of worry is kind of always been there that oh you know money will leave our country and then you know uh that will be really awful for us so so my um question for you uh wayne is you know you're obviously you can you know there's uh, you you've got this product but you know you got you're going to have to be a bit tactical in terms of where you're going to first put your energy right like which countries will you first focus on so i want to hear your thinking on that like where are you guys starting uh, to really uh, do the onboarding and and why are you starting in those locations yeah thank you so uh unitas offers cross border businesses operating in uh or dealing with emerging markets uh a way to transact in us dollar denominated terms uh, i'm sorry um to transact in local currency terms mm-hmm. while still knowing that they can always unconditionally convert their stablecoins back to a us dollar stablecoin right because uh most of these cross border businesses because they have to earn their own us dollars so they're always uh both importers and exporters at the same time and so and when they're importers and exporters they have a lot of entities uh in dubai uh, bus- they operate business entities in dubai uh, singapore and hong kong right to operate all these import and export and so um and their preferred currency any day is the US dollar right so most of their working capital is kept in these uh uh with these companies offshore quote unquote offshore to emerging markets right uh with strong banks such as citibank and hsbc so that's always been their preferred way of operation uh but what's troublesome is a lot of times when they're transacting uh with domestic entities they need to denominate uh and, and do a lot of transactions in local currency terms right uh so the unitas stablecoin then allows them to know that these stablecoins value are pegged one to one uh to local currency but the over reserve the entire reserve and over reserve is in us dollar stablecoins such as usdt and usdc and that they can always uh with the protocol convert back and because the protocol allows unconditional conversion back quote and quote back right uh back to usd stablecoins and therefore um there will be local exchanges local uh otc desks that are offering this service uh promising one to one conversion um uh to local currency and also offering uh conversion to us dollar stablecoin and that's going to make the service a lot uh, a lot more friendly for these uh businesses to use right so uh these businesses they would most likely not have to directly interact with the protocol but interact with a local cryptocurrency exchange uh, uh or an OTC desk right and these exchanges and OTC desk will then uh programmatically or use the protocol's uh, web UI to convert with the protocol um here in India 
when we started out, and it's very, it's been an interesting journey. When we、uh, started out on this journey in 2018, we were under a ban by the Reserve Bank of India, so a ban for any banks to provide financial services to crypto-related companies.、Uh, then the industry, of course, complained, and then、uh, the Supreme Court of India、uh, has ruled that this ban by、uh, RBI is unconstitutional. Right, you cannot deny、uh, businesses of、uh, financial services.、Uh, so fast forward to today, there is a one percent、uh, TDS tax. Right, so、um, for these OTC desks,、uh, when they sell, for example,、uh, Uniton stablecoins、uh, in rupees to a local business, then、uh, they have to、uh, file one percent TDS tax. Mm. That's pre、uh, pre collected、uh, to the Indian Taxation Bureau, which、mm. then they、uh, during tax season they can、uh, they can claim to refund.、Uh, mm. So that's the current status.、Um, and the countries that we're focused on are countries with uh, very uh, that are extremely short of U.S. dollar liquidity. Right. So almost all countries in Africa, various countries in Southeast Asia, and also India. But but if there is a ban, like as in for example, I mean again, I'm sorry, I'm like hung up on Pakistan because that's where I'm from, right? Like I mean, I I like you know in a past life, and I told you when I first I spoke to you, right, that you know I I was helping build a business in Pakistan. We wanted to expand、uh, regionally. We we had a terrible time expanding regionally. You know, in the end, we ended up selling that enterprise, and and you know I do wonder that you know if we could access dollar. If we could access international capital markets, would we have kind of been forced into a sale, right? Like those questions. I mean, I would never know, but like those are questions I wonder about. But like today, like you know, there's a ban, and so you know, like for example, I do wonder. I mean, I, I, I still want to get to the question of like you know whether how would self custody even work for businesses. But before that, assuming like you know, there's a business in Pakistan, they want to benefit from Unitas. Like you know, can they? Given that the fact that like you know, they 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 if there's no sex, for example, in the country, and there's only these peer-to-peer operators,、uh, you know, can they also benefit from this protocol? Like, would those peer-to-peer、uh, agents benefit from this protocol? Can you maybe sh- yeah thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean,、um, these businesses they have、uh, found ways uh, that uh, to operate safely. Right and in an accepted way by、uh, local regulators and local uh, uh, law enforcement,、uh, and this usually、uh, involves also、uh, operating、uh, their、uh, many companies outside of these countries, right, where they park the majority of their operational capital.、Um, so, and there's、uh, a lot of、uh, OTC activity going on. Uh, mostly uh, using USDT,、um, and so I, I don't see that. Then、uh, this, the Unitas protocol just makes everything a lot easier、um, because now they can do these transactions not in not only in US dollar terms,、uh, yeah, but also in local currency terms,、uh, thinking in in local currency terms. So and also the other. Uh, uh, because uh, recently we've been working with multiple law enforcement, and we've been helping out、uh, the FBI in quite a few very important cases.、Uh, Xrex,、uh, my other hat is as co-founder and CEO to Xrex, a centralized exchange. Right, Xrex has been using、um, 
two anti-money laundry、uh, tools. One is Mastercard Cipher Trace,、uh, and the other one is TRM Labs.、Uh, and、uh, we're also evaluating Chainalysis as the third provider.、Uh, so from our experience today, it has become a lot safer to use、uh, cryptocurrencies for business. Yeah, stable coins, stable coins for business. Right,、uh, right. Because of、uh, the strength of these tools, right? Because in the past,、uh, one big concern for for these、uh, small medium businesses is sometimes they would、uh, they would end up、uh, buying uh, sanctioned uh, stable coins or bad stable coins, right? Bad,、uh, for example, USDT that just came out of a Russian exchange. Now that is going to be considered sanctioned USDT. Uh, or USDT that came from、uh, some some hack, right? Or some、uh, some scam group, some、uh, criminal group. So、uh, as soon as when you when you buy those USDT, then often、uh, lo- local law enforcement is going to come after you, and because you are being investigated,、um, then a lot of times they freeze all of your bank accounts. You know, however many companies you're operating. All of the bank accounts associated with all of these companies are going to be frozen during the time of investigation, which is usually a year or two, right? So you're going to have all your working capital frozen, and that is one of the top concerns for、uh, small medium businesses to use stablecoins、uh, in emerging markets. But this part of the problem is getting resolved uh, uh, very quickly thanks to all these、uh, AML blockchain AML companies. What I was thinking so, is that、um, the world in which Unitas thrives is a world in which exchanges <clears throat> now function as almost like very narrowly defined、uh, commercial banks、mm-hmm. for people that have cross-border kind of business dealings. Right?、Mm-hmm. That's where you hold your account. That's where you receive payments.、Um, you know, I've been paying people actually in Taiwan with 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 crypto just because. Trying to pay them through PayPal has led to their accounts getting confiscated, even though you know it's it's just like artwork or ceramics or whatever.、Um, and so there's a certain ease for these things、uh, that I that I think you know it 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 shows a new role for the central exchange in a way. You know, it's not just a casino for people to buy things that go up and down. It really is a place where you're kind of、uh, clearing foreign exchange kind of conversions, and I think that's actually quite an interesting. World、um, makes me see central ex- centralized exchanges in a new light. Let me put it that way.、Mm. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 really helpful to centralized exchanges、um, because,、uh, like, there there are quite a few centralized exchanges here in India as well, right? That offers、uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum order books as well as order uh, uh, USDT order books against uh, uh, Indian rupees. However. These order books are all extremely shallow, right?、Mm. Because they they just don't have local liquidity.、Uh, but with Unitas,、um, if you are are、uh, Indian rupee pegged、uh, unit Unitized stablecoins called USD ninety one ninety one is India's country code, right? Because essentially you're holding USD, but you're holding、um, US dollar value that's pegged to one rupee, so it's called USD ninety one. So、um, Uh, together, uh, uh, by working,、uh, by having Unitas protocol working with centralized exchanges in India, 
uh, these exchanges can create uh, order books with, uh, you know, all, like 10 times better liquidity, uh, not only for BTC and ETH trading, but also for uh, USDT to rupees conversions. Wayne, this is something I want to understand. Like, I mean, I, you know, self like in in the world you see like do you ever see businesses getting comfortable with self custody or what you see happening is that businesses will have an account with an exchange the exchange will be you know holding a bunch of unitas local emcs and basically that's how businesses will get access to these uh, to these payment trails so so which how do you see that playing out like you know businesses getting comfortable with custody or like sex is basically just becoming really good yeah so um because we've been helping businesses understand how they can use uh stable coins mm -hmm. and cryptocurrency and uh, we have seen uh very good momentum in businesses adopting uh self-custody solutions okay. um and, and and we've started to see that almost two years ago already of course we had a wave of then, you know, after learning um, the usefulness and the beauty, the mm -hmm. self-sovereignty side uh, when you can self-custody, right? Then we saw a lot of um, compromises uh, to their wallets or them being fished uh, because they're just learning about self-custody, right? And, and learning about all the skills that you need to equip yourself with and uh, yeah, so, but um, I, I, uh, for me, I, I do see that uh, more and more businesses in emerging markets will be learning self-custody. And I think it's a very important part of blockchain's uh, value proposition to these businesses. And that is the real uh, uh, financial sovereignty, right? You can really own the value that you have produced. Mm. You can only mm. do, you can only really own that, um, really have financial sovereignty uh, if you can self-custody and, and, and equip yourself with all of the skills of self-custody. Very cool. When when are you guys launching? Like, I mean, and, and I guess the other question is that, you know, uh, like, obviously, this thing works well when you have a lot of insurance providers. So what's your... What's your message to the insurance providers uh, and like, how are you going to get them on board? Yeah. So uh, for the insurance providers, uh, right now we're targeting uh, these uh, small, medium businesses uh, because it's very intuitive for them. They understand how this whole thing works. Um, and as insurance providers, one, um, they have to know that uh, uh, after maturity, they can redeem any time from the protocol, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the other thing is uh, during this time, uh, they're going to be earning yield because the protocol distributes most of its profits to only insurance providers. Mm -hmm, and there is mm -hmm. a leverage factor that allows the protocol um, uh, uh, to uh, produce high yields because the 100% of the main collateral, right? is not yield generating, right? So for the minters, for the users of this protocol, the protocol does not offer any yield. Of course. The protocol only offers yield um, to the insurance provider. So let's say it's, it's uh, uh, let's say it's 150%, right? So the protocol is using 150% of uh, the reserve to generate yield, 
but it's giving yield only to the fifty percent of uh, the uh, which are the mm. insurance providers. Mm. So and mm. that gives the protocol okay, an, I leverage that. Okay. To, to increase the yield. Yeah. Uh, so and that's really you, cool. Yeah, I like to also say that one. Uh, you know, uh, one very interesting design of this is, let's say, let's say you went and 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 uh, you lend your money to a protocol for two years. Two years is a very long time, right? Uh, and you need some short-term liquidity. What you can do is you can sell your forex in secondary markets, right? For that liquidity, I get right. That. And you just have to find the right time and price to buy your forex back. Before you go and redeem your money with the protocol, because when you redeem, you have to surrender yep. all of the forex that you receive back to the protocol to burn in order to redeem your principal. But um, because you're receiving forex tokens during the time of your staking, uh, those forex tokens is a, a means to provide uh, liquid liquidity uh, during your staking period. That that design I really like. I mean, I guess the question I have is, uh, I've been wondering. I mean, I, I can see like you know yield chasers kind of getting interested, but I'm I'm wondering like, is it going to be yield chasers or like saying this is an interesting deal or will it be like hedgers? Because because there's also like you know for if I am in a you know like a I don't know fertilizer import export business. I I've I've you know I've been on a board of one such company, right? Like for them. This is an interesting hedging tool as well. So that's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, do you see the primary use case coming from businesses trying to hedge positions, or do you see, or do you see the initial capital coming from people looking to hedge their positions? Or do you see the initial capital coming from people who are like, I have a very good yield opportunity because I know these currencies will keep depreciating. Uh, our minters are already providing a bunch of the collateral, but like, uh, you know, all that capital is really working for, for me. So, you know, so this is actually a pretty uh, capital efficient design. I didn't pick that up when I was going through your white paper. So I like the deal. So I'm just curious, like, you know, what sort of initial capital do you think comes in? Yeah. So um, hedging is very important, uh, but that, that is a functionality uh, needed by the users, right? So, for example, mm -hmm. if I'm doing, uh, if I'm converting 50 million US dollars um, into Indian rupees, knowing that in six months' time I will be converting back, then can I secure a futures contract so I'm not subject to this forex volatility? Uh, we have a, a really good design for that, uh, and that's going to be implemented um, sometime in the near future. So, that will allow um, our users uh, to have uh, a futures contract with a protocol to secure their rates in, in, uh, rates of conversion. So that's for the users. That's not really for the ins insurance providers. Uh, for the insurance providers, uh, they we're we're re not targeting um, uh, really uh, the DeFi community. We're really targeting. Uh, Small cross-border, small-medium businesses, emerging markets that really understand this problem. Yeah, I figured. I figured. <laughs> yeah, and and that has a lot of their most of their working capital in U.S. dollars, right? So yeah, uh, it's just a way for them to, for them to generate better yield uh, compared to. But I'd say, Wayne, yeah, for the DeFi community, it's a compelling. I mean, again, I as for some, as someone who's willing to bet against these currencies, I I like the deal. I'm like, this is 
a fun deal, you know. Like, uh, so you know, the speculator in me is getting interested in your forex token, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, very cool. When when launch, uh, Wayne? Like, when is this thing getting started? Yeah, uh, uh, we're we're releasing the white paper in a few days in uh, six languages. Uh, and protocol is more than ninety percent implemented. We're doing a lot of security audits, uh, so um, as soon as we fully test this, uh, we'll launch uh, uh, most likely both on Ethereum um, and also on Polygon. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. Um, I'm 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 pumped. Uh, you know to see like uh, uh, you know uh, where it goes. Um, one other big point I wanted to discuss was how do you select your basket uh, of stable coins? Uh, you know, and in particular, like you know, I I I think you got a bunch of uh, you know, uh, what's your thinking on choosing the basket? Like, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. So we we wrote about our our thinking in a later chapter in the white paper, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we're developing a, a risk assessment framework mm -hmm. uh, for us to assess which are the uh, safer U.S. dollar stablecoins mm -hmm. um, that uh, that we can incorporate as a type of reserve, uh, and one very important uh, uh, matrix for us is how exogenous are their reserves. Right? For example, USDT and USDC. Mm -hmm. uh, the reserves, their reserves are roughly, let's say, twenty percent commercial bank deposits, and 80% uh, short-term treasury bills, right? So U.S. dollar commercial bank deposits and uh, U.S. treasury bills, these two are not only exogenous assets to the stablecoin issuers because these are assets that are not being issued or operated by Tether and Circle or Paxos. Right? These are exogenous to the issuer. At the same time, these are exogenous to the entire crypto market. Right, So if crypto markets are crashing, uh, it's, uh, it will not systemically um, impact U.S. Treasury bills. U.S. Treasury bills is very exogenous to the entire crypto market. Now, if you look at something like uh, MakerDAO's DAI, DAI is reserved by many types of assets, uh, but are all exogenous to the maker protocol and ecosystem, right? So they're collateralized by Raft ETH, um, many types of uh, stable coins, especially USDC, uh, and, all, and, and also now uh, real world assets, uh, commercial paper, things like that. All of these assets are exogenous, well, are uh, exogenous to the maker protocol. However, a lot of these assets, like ETH, for example, is not exogenous to crypto markets. Yeah, I get that. Right? So when the entire crypto market is having issues or a systemic crash, ETH is going to crash as well, most likely. So therefore, uh, uh, um, on this part of the, uh, the risk assessment, Something like USDC as a US dollar stablecoin would score higher than Maker, right? And then there are other uh, other scores as well. Uh, for example, how decentralized is the operations? 
how transparent are the operations, right? Um, and this part maker scores very high because um, there's very, very good uh, transparency because a lot of the stablecoin operations is executed on chain mm. uh, versus a centralized organization such as uh, US, uh, such as Circle and Tether. Uh, we can't really see into a lot of their operations, right? So we have which a ones are you picking? So I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, can you share which ones you've picked for your collateral basket? Yeah, yeah. For the first one right now, um, is Tether USDT, and I will explain why. Um, and not USDC, Tether, and no USDC. Very interesting, right? Oh, that is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, we we uh, we I was just on a call with. Um, uh, with the Circle C level team, a few days ago, we have been a, a, a partner and also a customer of Circle and Tether both. Uh, so we know both of these companies intimately. Um, Tether really has a big brand name in emerging markets, and they have mm. great liquidity, mm. right? Um, and people do trust it. For example, I'll give an example. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. During the Terra Luna collapse, um, USDC was having a huge premium against USDT, right? So it seemed like a USDT has depegged and has uh, has depreciated a little bit, right? Uh, but it was really uh, because of USDC appreciating. But anyways, so you can see in in, um, in crypto and especially in DeFi, in the DeFi community, people were very worried about tether and 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 that, that and they were dumping tether right causing tether to uh, further depreciate uh, but amongst the xrx uh users the big uh businesses in emerging markets they saw this opportunity and and a lot of these big businesses were just buying up tether Right, it's like, oh my God, you know, we can we can buy ninety five cents on the dollar. <laughs> We're buying um, because they have seen over and over um, how uh, Tether survived various uh, crises. So there is there is a lot of confidence uh, uh, against USDT, and USDT is the 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 US dollar stablecoin that has a strong brand. In the oper in the markets that we operate in today, and we have been, you know, um, uh, uh, marketing USDC and introducing USDC to them, uh, but it, it uh, still today USDT uh, today um, is what they understand more about. You and, know, and what, we what, know. What when I um, I uh, this is get, another person. I, I would love to get him as well on the show. He's he's in Argentina. He told me that you know the biggest sort of uh, stable and big. And they, he said that USDT on Tron in Argentina is king. Like most apartment transactions are settling on USDT on Tron. And for me, I was like, what is Tron? I did not know what Tron was, and I was like. <laughs> What is, is like, we're, what? I mean, I'm going to... Surely you heard of Justin Sun and his, his famous lunch with Warren Buffett. Uh, I only learned after that. I did not know who Justin Sun was. I mean, I'm, I'm new, like, I guess, like, I'm class of 21, if you will, I, right? I, I didn't know who Justin Sun was until he told me about this. And then it was even in Pakistan, it's like USDT on Binance Smart Chain. And so then you're like, wait, I mean, there's then, you know, that... and it's, I said, but I guess the... the, the 
follow on vein like why not use multiple currencies like i mean why only like i mean over why not just over collateralized with any stable right like usdc and usdt and busd like why would what benefit do you get from only having usdt as the collateral in the collateral bucket um that's just uh that's just only usdt uh when we launch uh we've written in the white paper that yeah. we're moving towards a multi collateral approach um but uh we need to design the mechanism so that uh we don't get farmed right um so that when we support both usdt and usdc and there is a price difference uh how will the protocol defend against a farming attack um so that part needs to be de- fully designed and thought out before we can support another us dollar stablecoin but it's absolutely our our goal to support multiple uh us dollar stablecoins and that's why we had that risk assessment framework laid out um in the white paper I got a solution for that but I'll discuss it with you offline. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> we we'll love to hear it Manny. Oh, yeah. I was oh well, anyway we'll, we have, okay I guess I guess we'll talk about it uh, uh offline but no um I mean uh you know uh when Manny's uh, uh and uh, you know the team at uh, Ampleforth they they've they've designed um a spot uh you know which is a which is a very clever take on you know designing a stable asset like one of manny's i would say uh, big contributions and there are many but like the protocol the the i think the first protocol manny worked on was this view that you know tranching is such a fundamental need of finance so you know can you use tra- like that so there should be just an easy way to tranche assets and then like the second part of that innovation was well if you can now if you've now tranched an asset uh now can you create rotating tranches uh as a as a, as a way to collateralize a stable asset uh and uh, uh any anyhow uh you know that's something that's something i found uh, i found pretty interesting yeah i guess you could use spot so that the this inflation resistant token um it's called spot and uh, uh so that's not actually what i was referring to as the solution there's there's a type of vault mechanism that i'm currently working on that i i think might be useful for for what you need um Got so it. that's slightly different but in terms of spot i think um since we're on the topic i mean it's it's an inflation resistant dollar and what i learned the other day is that the data that feeds into it is actually not the bls data series right which has now been changed to show lower inflation numbers in the united states uh but it has all these other off-chain kind of uh price aggregator uh data feeds that actually are based on real transactions in the US which I actually did not know that's that's how ample for three basis so so it 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 will be uh it will show higher inflation I think than than the official numbers but mm. you know we don't know that might be a good collateral for for something else um but yeah mm in fact when you've commented uh, in our uh, in the in our telegram uh, chat that you know you've you've sometimes wondered you know like what the use case is for an inflation resistant store of value uh, it might be interesting to like hear your your brief thoughts on that too if you if you if you're comfortable sharing oh um i i just uh you know once in a while i i um i think about cuz uh inflation resistant stable coins are very interesting i find um very interesting and very innovative um so I, i just often think about what are the best use cases uh for them and why they haven't 
uh, received uh, even more adoption. I'm just theorizing. Um, and maybe it's because uh, for many people, maybe they just feel that uh, for, for right or wrong, that um, they can, they can, you know, they can not only beat him when it comes to their wealth management, not, not their liquidity part of their assets, but their wealth. Maybe uh, I, I'm just guessing maybe a lot of people right or wrong feel that they can create, you know, wealth um, uh, rather than just beating beat inflation. That's just one, one guess, right? Mm. Interesting. M many, any, any response to that on like, you know, the, yeah, I, I had a slightly different take hmm. based on another book called hmm. the big problem with small change, which is when you have two currencies that circulate, but one dominates the other in terms of returns, right? Hmm. And an inflation resistant dollar by definition dominates uh, a dollar. Um, hmm. Then the, then the dominant one, the one that has a dominant return, uh, goes out of circulation because people hoard it and they, you know, so basically it's, you know, if mm -hmm. I'm settling an invoice, why would I pay you in my inflation resistant dollars? I'll give mm -hmm. you, I'll give you the regular dollars instead and I'll keep the, the good stuff for myself. So, um, <clears throat> so it's mm -hmm. quite hard to keep that kind of token in circulation. Um, there should be more demand for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it's unclear. I mean, I, I think, it's a market need that's definitely different than that of your traditional DeFi degen consumer, right? Most, as as as, uh, as Wayne said, most of those folks are interested in getting these massive returns. Um, what I just described is probably it fits the needs of more retail-based users, people who say, "Hey, um, I, I made some money in the market." Um, but I, you know, I used to keep my savings in stable coins. I just want to protect them from inflation because my bank offers me nothing. Uh, and inflation this year will probably be 7%. So I think it probably requires onboarding uh, a lot of new users who do, in fact, have more of a mindset that fits what I just described, right? It's a much more retail mindset. Yeah. Totally. Well, guys, this has been an amazing discussion and uh, so grateful to both of you uh, for making the time. Uh, and, and Wayne, I mean, you're a trooper, man, like waking up at 4.30 a.m. Like, you know, I feel <laughs> oh, it's been so, a pleasure. I would have absolutely happily done this at a better hour. But, you know, you seem to be comfortable with it. So now I'm wondering, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm used what, to does it. this guy ever sleep? Does this guy ever sleep? <laughs> like, <laughs> But I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful uh, that uh, to you and uh, and to Manny, this is this was such an enjoyable discussion. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a wonderful discussion. Absolutely.